All right, so we're going to do uh, week four, and uh, if you want to turn to page 55 in your notebooks, that's where we're going to be reading today. We're going to be uh, actually covering two chapters today. We're going to get real aggressive. Uh, this is the only time we're going to cover two chapters. They just happen to go together, and they made sense together, so that's what we're going to do. So this week, we're moving into um, yet another kind of a not new look at Esther, but a, a deeper look at Esther. You remember last week, we met Haman. Haman uh, the Amalekite, Haman the guy who was second uh, most powerful man in the nation of Persia, and he comes up with this grandiose plan to get rid of all the Jews because one man wouldn't bow down to him. That man happened to be Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, the new queen. And so he comes up with a plan. He goes to the king. The king buys into the plan. He signs the edict, seals it with his ring, and every Jew on a particular day coming up about a year away are going to be executed, murdered, destroyed, men, women, children, and all their goods plundered. So we met Haman last week, and we looked at the fact that he introduced this feud, but it's a feud that goes way back between the Amalekites and the Israelites, and it goes all the way back into when they were leaving Egypt, and it also took kind of a worst turn under the reign of King Saul when God said, destroy them. He didn't. And God said, you're going to have conflict with these people for generations. So here we are in Persia many, many years later, and it's coming true. So this week, we want to take it deeper and really see that this is a kingdom clash. And we touched on that last week, that it's much greater than and much deeper than two men, Haman and Mordecai. It's really a clash between two kingdoms, and it's not the kingdom of Israel, and it's not the kingdom of the Amalekites. It's a spiritual battle, and it's, it's much deeper than these two men realize. And I want us to really wrestle with that today when we look at what's going on in the world around us, that what we face today is, is really a, um, it's not a battle necessarily over worldviews, even though that's part of what we're facing. It is a spiritual battle. It's not ideological. It's not how you think and the guy next to you thinks. It's not how you vote and he votes, it's, it's spiritual. And we've got to remember that as we face all the stuff going on in this world today, we shouldn't be surprised at what we see because we're in a spiritual warfare. It's a kingdom clash. So here's our definition of providence today. This one comes from John Piper and his book called A Sweet and Bitter Providence. He says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Now, don't you wish that was the case? And for a lot of us who accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, that's how it was presented to us, right? You know, you just come on down the aisle if you were Baptist. Come on down the aisle. You, you accept Jesus Christ, and your life's just going gonna, gonna to take off like a rocket. If you were young, you were told, hey, you're going to meet a good Christian woman. You're going to, you know, have a wonderful marriage. You're going to have kids. It's going to be great. And then you accept Christ, and things kind of get tough, and you wonder what happened. Well, he goes on and says, life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph, Job, Esther, and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's probably the best definition I think we've had so far in terms of just life, right? Life is full of difficulties. Life is full of twists and turns. Life has up and downs. It doesn't always go smoothly. It doesn't always go well just because we're believers. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes it goes worse because we're believers, because we're, we're kind of swimming upstream. We're going against the, 
the flow. And so this idea that God is not just stepping in after either we screw it up or the world screws it up or something happens and we pray and, oh gosh, I'll fix it. No, no, no. He's, he's involved in every aspect that's going on in our lives, deeply involved, uh, planning so much of what happens. And that's a different way of looking at life, right? It's, you can look at it as, well, I, I screwed up or life screwed up and now God's got to fix it. Or you can rest in the fact that God is managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. If you see it this way, it will change the way you view life and the circumstances of life. So do you see God in your troubles? When something happens, do you see God or do you think God is not there? God has left you, abandoned you, bailed on you, punishing you. Do you see God in your troubles or do they tend to indicate that God's not around? So if you go out to your car this morning after this study and you've got a flat tire, will you praise God? Will you say, God, yeah, I, don't, I don't get this, but you know, maybe you, you're delaying me for a reason. I don't understand it. And then if somebody comes up and says, hey, I'll help you change that, you, you, will you say, you know, Lord, thank you for that, the kindness of that individual for helping me? Or will you say, why didn't two people help me? Or why did you send a person who helped me didn't know what he's doing? <laughs> see, how do you view the trouble in your life? Do you see God in it or do you think he's absent from it? So let's read, and yes, we're going to read Esther chapter 4 and chapter 5. After all, this is the Word of God, right? And it's efficacious, it's beneficial, it's life-changing, so I, you know, let's read it. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned that all had been done, all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes. So this is after the edict, after everything has been decided that all the Jews are going to be killed. Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. Remember, that's the place where he sat. That's the place where he did business. He was on some kind of a uh, job for the king. He was a representative of the king, sat at the king's gate where all the business was transacted. So he goes there. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, so he couldn't go past the king's gate. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Yeah, because it's been proclaimed by the king and sealed with his ring, and it's irre irrevocable that they're all going to be killed about a year later. So, yeah, they're, they're in mourning. They're sad. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen, the queen was deeply distressed, so she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take his sackcloth off, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So she doesn't know what's going on yet. She just knows my cousin's out there in sackcloth and ashes. He needs to change clothes. He, he needs to get his act together. So she sends this guy out to get information. So Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries. Now you remember that uh, along with telling the king, I want you to kill all these people, he said, I'm going to put um, a certain amount of silver into the coffers of the king so that this could happen. 
The estimates are that the amount of silver he offered to give the king to make this happen was two-thirds of the annual income of the entire nation of Persia. Now, where he was going to get that money, we don't know. Evidently, he was wealthy, had access to the, the funds, but Mordecai is basically telling her, here's the bad news that you don't seem to know anything about because you're sequestered in the palace. He goes on and says, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her the command and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. So 30 days have passed. She's not been called in to see the king. And so the rule is, the law is, if you walk into his presence uncalled for, without his permission, you're put to death. So she's like, I don't know that I can do this. I haven't been called. I can't just walk in. Verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Keep in mind, she has never told anyone in the palace, including the king, that she is a Jew because Mordecai told her not to. Then he goes on, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for, for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Great line. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day after her fasting, Esther put on her royal robe, stood in the center, inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. We've seen that line before. So hadn't been called in 30 days. She walks in. He sees her. He could have gotten angry, but he, he extends his scepter. He he, she finds favor in his sight. That ought to trigger something in your brain. When the king saw her, he, she won favor to sight. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached, touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, what, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. He sounds like a genie, right? What is your wish? What is your request? Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You know, it sounds like she's just putting off the inevitable, right? You know, what did Mordecai say to do? Go beg the king for the life of your people. And she keeps saying, every time he says, what is your wish? 
I'll give you half my kingdom. And she just keeps saying, I want to throw a party. She does that, and he goes, I want to throw another party. So she's doing something. Verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So here it goes again. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. What an egotistical bore. Can you imagine that? You know, your buddy calls you over, you walk into his house, and then he spends the next hour regaling himself. The guy's full of himself, right? Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I can't stand this guy. I have it all. I'm wealthy. I'm loved by the king, obviously loved by the queen. I got power, but I can't stand Mordecai. One man won't bow down to me, and it ruins his day. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, we got a solution. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning let tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And the gallows was made. Okay, that's a lot of reading. That's a lot of information. But basically, you get the gist. You've got Haman. Haman has gotten the, the decree issued. It's spread around the entire kingdom of Persia. Now Esther knows about it. Mordecai's in mourning. She's been brought up to speed. She fasts for three days. Now she's trying to figure out, what are we going to do? Now, what I want us to look at as we go through this story is that there's, there's really two things going on here. you got Haman and you got Esther. Mordecai is kind of a, a, a third character in the scene, and I want to take a look at him. But really, the two that are going to um, strike our attention, should strike our attention, are Haman and Esther and what they represent. So Mordecai, he's upset. He tears his clothes. He really represents the entire nation of Israel living in Persia at the time. He kind of sets the stage. He's in mourning. He cries out with a loud and bitter cry. He's upset, obviously, but he's not alone because everywhere the edict was decreed, everywhere it was read, all the other Jews are in mourning. They're fasting. They're weeping. They're lamenting. They're in sackcloth and ashes. Why? Because they're going to be destroyed. They're, they're upset, obviously so, because this is an incredible issue. It's not a case of overreaction. Uh, they're not weeping and moaning, much like we see happening today in our nation. It's, it's, a, it's a death sentence. It's a year away, but guys, it's a death sentence. It's going to happen, and there's not anything they can do about it. They're powerless to stop what's about to happen. Because here's the decree. Destroy, kill, annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, and plunder their goods. You would be in mourning, too. Now, they couldn't just leave the country. They, they couldn't go, well, I'm, I'm moving to Australia. I'm, I'm getting out of here. It wasn't that easy. So they basically, for the next year, they were just going to have to live their lives knowing that 365 days away, they were all going to be slaughtered. Imagine, you know, would you want to have kids? Would you want to get married? Would you want to... 
How would you even face life knowing that a year from now you're going to die? Not only you, but everyone you know and everyone you love. So they're obviously upset. A year to live, helpless and hopeless. Now, I have never, I, I think I've been through times where I felt helpless and hopeless, but I've never faced anything quite like this. Um, I've been on the verge of bankruptcy before, and I, I remember, I've told you guys a story before, but uh, back when I was in advertising, I had my own agency, and I was on the verge of bankruptcy because the real estate economy had gone south, and all my accounts were real estate oriented, and we could barely pay our bills, and I was so down, and I was so upset, and I was so helpless and hopeless and didn't know what I was going to do, and I went and met with one of the elders in our church. And he just happened to be a financial planner, so I thought I was going to kill two birds with one stone, get some spiritual advice and financial advice. I walk into his office, and he asked me, what's wrong? So I weep and moan and mourn. I didn't have on sackcloth and ashes, but I acted like it. And I told him how miserable life was and how horrible it was, and God wasn't doing anything. And I prayed, and he didn't answer, and he just listened and listened. And finally, I waited, and he said, so what's going to happen? And I was like, I don't know. That's why I'm here. He goes, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? So I don't know. I guess I could go bankrupt. He goes, okay, let's say you go bankrupt. You going to end up on the street? Well, no. He goes, all right. Is your wife going to leave you? Well, I don't think so. Your kid's going to walk out on you? No. Is the church going to kick you out? No. And he just kept asking those questions. And I was getting angrier and angrier just thinking, what an idiot. I came to you for counsel. And he said, Ken, even if all the worst things happen that you think might happen, will you survive? I said, yeah, I'll probably survive, but it's going to stink. He goes, but you will survive. And he said, your problem is you've already gone to the worst case scenario and none of them have happened and probably most of them won't happen, but you will survive. You will come through this. Your church won't abandon you. Your wife won't leave you. Your kids aren't going to walk out on you. You have family. You have people who love you. It's not as bad as you think. And I remember I walked out angry, got in my car, regretting that I'd ever met the guy. But then the longer I thought and drove, I realized he's right. See, I've never been where these people are, but I've definitely mourned and weeped and moaned. And if, if it were appropriate to do sackcloth and ashes and I knew where to get it, I would do it. Because, and, and what we do is, we don't wear sackcloth and ashes, but here's what you do, because I, I know you do. I do it. When you're going through a tough time, here's what you do, unless you're just wired really weird. You'll come to church, and you will look like Eeyore. You know, you'll be the sad-faced, shuffle, you know, and people go, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. And you'll lie through your teeth, but you want everyone to know you're miserable. And the sad thing is the people who know, who know you're miserable the most are the people who love you the most, the people you live with. And, and you will just wander around the house in misery, and you will make them miserable, as if you're wearing sackcloth and ashes. See, they're helpless. They're hopeless. But here's the question for them, and here's the question for you. Were they really helpless and hopeless? When you go through difficulty, are you really alone? Are you really helpless and hopeless? Read, read with me Exodus, because there's a great tie-in between these two things, the story of Exodus and the story of Esther. And remember, the day that was picked by Lot for them to be destroyed is, is the day before the celebration of Passover. 
the celebration of the Exodus. Well, let's look at the Exodus. Exodus 2, verse 23 and 25. Years passed, the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Now, if you go back and you read the story of the Exodus and you read the the story of the people living in Israel, there's no indication in this verse or in this time period that they're calling out to God. It just says they cried out. And what we know about the Israelites is during this time, they had pretty much abandoned Yahweh for all the gods of Egypt. They had become acclimated to the world of Egypt, the religions of Egypt, and the plagues, which are all tied to a God of Egypt, were not really for the Egyptians. It was to prove to the Israelites that Yahweh is bigger and badder and better than all these gods that you seem to think are worth worshiping. It was a reminder that God is there. And it says they cried out, they whined and moaned and lamented and who heard them? God. And when it says God remembered, it's not that God forgot. It wasn't God, oh, God forgot all about these people. I forgot about my promise. That's not what that means. It means that he acted. He knew well what was going on. He's the one who said years and years earlier that you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to be there 400 years. This was part of God's plan. It was part of his providential plan for them. But he heard them, he listened, and he said, it's time to act. Now's the time. It goes on in chapter 3, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. Man, if you want to memorize a verse, memorize that one. And just memorize the last line. Yes, I am aware of your suffering. Whatever you're going through, whatever happens in your life, you can know and you can hear God whispering in your ear, yes, I'm aware of your suffering. I know what's going on. Please do not panic. I hear your cries. I see your distress. I'm fully aware. And when the time is right to act, guess what? God will act. Here's my guarantee. It will not be on your timing. And it probably won't be the way you want him to act. But God will act. And it will be better than anything you could ever dream up with. So they cried out for help. And their cry rose up to who? God. To God. So here's Mordecai. Even Mordecai, it doesn't say he cried out to God. It just says he lamented. He mourned. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He's walking around the streets. He goes, he sends a message to Esther. But it doesn't say he was calling out to God, but guess who heard his cry? God. Guess who heard all the cries of these people all across every province of Persia? God. He cries out, and God hears him. When you cry out, if you're a son of God, a child of God, if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you cry out, he hears you. Every time. Even though, in this case, there's no mention of God. No mention of crying out to God, but guess what? Their cries are real. Their hurts are real. Their despair is real. And even though they don't direct them at him, guess who hears them? Their heavenly father. 
He hears them and he's going to act. He's going to step in because God always hears. And here's, here's the thing that we need to understand, that when you cry out to God or when you just cry out, you're not telling God he doesn't, something he doesn't know. I think it's kind of funny that we, we spend so much time in our prayer lives telling God how bad things are. Do you have any idea what's going on in my life right now? Do you know what they did to me at work? Do you have any idea what the doctor told me when I went in and the report that I got? God, God do you, let, me, let me tell you. So we spend all our time telling him what he already knows because he's God, right? God knows the problem, but are we really crying out for a solution? Or are we just busy telling him everything that's going wrong? We're not informing him of anything. When you cry out, and here's the real key, when you cry out, it really is showing your helplessness. Here's what I know about you as men. You hate to cry out. You hate to tell anybody what's really going on in your life, how bad things are, whether it's your finances, your marriage. Most guys will not cry out until they have no other tricks up their sleeve. They've exhausted all their personal resources. They've hit rock bottom. You know, the guys who've come to me over the years whose marriages are struggling, they come to me when their wife has already walked out the door. And they go, I need your help. What's wrong? My wife left me. Wow, what, what happened? I don't know. She just left me. Uh, I think there's probably more to, the, to it than that. We want to talk about it? Well, I don't understand it. She just left me. She's mad at me. She having an affair? No, she just left me. Doesn't love me anymore. I don't know what I did. And then the longer you talk, you realize that this goes way back. This is years of problems, issues. And it goes both ways. But when you finally get to the point where you'll cry out, it indicates your helplessness. And it activates God's faithfulness. See, so, so often what God wants you to do is just cry out. And it's not that he's mean. He's like, oh, I'm not going to help you until you cry out. It's because you don't think you need him yet. And God just steps back and goes, okay, as long as you've got other gods you want to turn to and you're the God or that's the God or you're going to turn to that, have at it. But when you get ready to cry out in your helplessness and hopelessness, guess what? I'm here. And it took an edict of the king of Persia to bring them to a point of helplessness and hopelessness. Because up until this point, we don't see a whole lot of crying out to God about anything. Should Esther be part of this party going to the king? Should, should she sleep with the king? Should she marry the king? There's no crying out for God's direction that we see. And here, now that when everything falls apart, they're crying out. And God hears and he's going to step in because he's faithful. See, I tend to see trials as an absence of God's presence. When something happens in my life, my, my immediate question is, where are you? What it, what it, why aren't you doing anything? Where have you gone? What have, what have I done to offend you? Where, and see, that's a wrong position for us to take, that God has somehow left us, abandoned us, bailed on us. Or we think that he's just displeased with us, right? Well, I must have screwed up somewhere. I didn't, oh, I didn't have a quiet time this morning. That's what it was. Oh, I didn't pray. I don't pray enough. Therefore, you're punishing me. So we have this warped view of God that he's just up in heaven and he just can't wait to zap you. He can't wait to just thump you and punish you and hurt you and harm you. And we lose sight of the fact that God wants what's best for you 
Now, he will punish us. He will discipline us because he loves us. But he does it out of love so that we will grow more dependent upon him. But we somehow, I'm always convinced that he's displeased with us. And then we're convinced that when our prayers don't get immediately answered, he doesn't hear us. Either he can't or he won't. You ever prayed and nothing happened? Your prayers don't get answered. You pray for weeks. You prayed for months. And it just doesn't seem like anything's happening. Here's the thing you got to remember. He does hear you. And he is going to act. But he's going to do it in his way and on his timeline. He hears you. Give him time. Let him act. Let him do what he's going to do. He is aware. He does care. He is going to intervene. Psalm 10, 17. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear, hear their cries and comfort them. He knows what's going on in your life. He's not in shock. He's not surprised. You don't have to inform him. You just have to rely on him. Lord, I need your help. I, I need your wisdom. I need you to intervene. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The sad thing for us as men, many of us are so stubborn, it takes a lot to crush our spirits. And we have to hit rock bottom. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it in my life that we have to kind of hit rock bottom before we really cry out and say, I need your help. You know, my wife has, over the years, has always gotten on me that you just don't need help. You do everything yourself. You know, I had two sons, and I would, you know, I'd mow the yard myself, and, I, you know, I'll do it. I know how to do it. I know how I like it. I just do it. And so I have two sons who grew up never knowing how to mow the yard, uh, never knowing how to work in the car. I love to work in the car, but I, I do everything by myself. And she was always like, why don't you take your sons? Why would I do that? Well, to teach them. Yeah, but I, they don't know how. Why would I? I don't need their help. No, no, you missed the point. You're teaching them so that they'll learn so they can help their sons when they have sons. Like, yeah, but I just want to get it done. And it's this independent streak that most of us have as men that really causes us the most problems when it comes to the difficulties in our life that we won't call out. We won't cry out. We won't even cry out to our friends. We just are afraid to. And yet the story of Mordecai, the story of Esther, the story of the people of God is they, they suddenly cried out. I don't know that they were necessarily crying out to God. They just cried out because they were helpless and completely hopeless. And guess who heard them? God. The only one who could do anything about it. So he mourns. He cries out. He makes his display public. He goes to the king's gate. He tells Esther, his cousin, who's the queen, and he calls on her to do something. Now, I'm not going to say this is bad wrong, right, indifferent. I'm just, it's interesting that he calls out, he cries out, he puts on sackcloth, he's walking around in the streets, and then he goes to Esther. Now, I do think something's going on in his mind where he's like, hmm, Esther just became queen. Haman just got promoted. Haman just got this edict sent out. There's something interesting going on here. I think, I think the synapses were firing, and he's, he's like, hmm, this may be bigger than I think it is. This may be more God-oriented than I think it is. So he goes to Esther, and he wants to get her involved because nobody has access to the queen like she does. And I really do believe Mordecai is beginning to imagine that there's probably something else going on here that is bigger than he ever dreamed. 
And I, and I love what he says to her, and this is from the New Living Translation. Listen to what it says. Don't imagine that because you're part of the king's household, you will be the one Jew who will escape. If you keep quiet at this time, liberation and protection for the Jews will appear from another source. He somehow believes if you don't do something, somebody will. And I think he's referencing that God is going to step into this. God's not going to let this happen. God's not going to let his people be destroyed. He says, you and your father's household will perish. It may very well be that you have achieved royal status for such a time as this. See, that's, that's a statement of a belief in, I think, of the providence of God. That somehow, in spite of all that's happened, even though we were probably wrong for letting you even go into the king's palace, and it was wrong for you to sleep with a pagan and now marry a pagan and eat all the pagan food and do all the things that he wants you to do, even though God is somehow using this to accomplish something great. And you were born for such a time as this. Have you ever thought about why you're on this planet? Why are you here? I don't know if you're a banker, retired, homeless. I don't know what, I don't know what your story is. But you're on this planet for a reason. And that line... Maybe you were born for such a time as this needs to resonate in your brain over and over again. Why are you here? What's your purpose? What's your divine purpose? I know what you think your purpose is. What's God's purpose for you? Why are you on this planet? Why was Esther where she was? How was God going to use her in this story? This idea of for such a time as this. Guys, we live in a time where every one of us have a role to play. And your role is not to post on Facebook nasty comments and slam one politician or another. Your job is to mirror Christ's likeness to those who don't know him. <coughs> you were born for such a time as this. You're on this planet for a reason. You're in Christ for a reason. You're a believer for a reason. And I think Mordecai sensed that. There's something going on bigger than him, bigger than Esther. It's not coincidental. It's not happenstance. It's not luck. God is at work behind the scenes. I love this from Brian Gregory. <coughs> he says, perhaps there's a deeper providential plan at work that has placed Esther in this fortuitous position for just such a time as this. See, I want you to learn to look at your life and go, why am I here? Why is this happening? What, what's my purpose? And it could be as small as you standing in line at a checkout counter. I'll tell you a story. Most of you guys have seen uh, uh, Don Ship, who's one of the policemen who uh, helps direct traffic. He's, he's got a, a chest that's about you know, 96 inches across. He's huge. And he was telling me, he's a believer, a real strong believer, and he was telling me a story how he and his wife went to a uh, grocery store. He was not in uniform. And there was a um, woman in a wheelchair in front of him, and she had some kids around her, and she um, had all her groceries, and they bagged all her groceries, and she put in her card to pay for her groceries, and the lady said, uh, it's, it's been rejected. And so she got out another card, and she put it in, and the lady said, it's, it's, it's been rejected. And so she just sat there, and so unbeknownst to this woman, Don takes his credit card out, puts it in the meter, and pays for her groceries. And the lady, the clerk, didn't tell her, said, oh, it's, it worked now. And the woman was just, oh, she was so relieved. 
And she goes out to her car, and Don pays for his groceries, he and his wife. They go out to the car, and this woman in her wheelchair wheels up to him, bawling. And she said, you paid for my groceries, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. And she said, she just bawling. She said, I, I can't tell you what that means to me. She said, I got up this morning. She said, we are completely broke. We have no money. I'm on a limited income. And she said, I got up this morning and I prayed, Lord, would you provide so I could get food for the, for the kids? And she goes, I just assumed he was going to put it in my account. And that's why she was using her cards. And yet what she didn't know was God was going to use this man. Why was he in the line behind her? Because he was born for such a time as this. See, these times don't have to be great times of great import that impact entire nations. It could impact the life of a single individual or a single family. Why are you here? You were born for such a time as this. So two plans are unfolding, and they're diametrically opposed. Two people, Esther and and Haman, are going to be put up against one another, but it's bigger than those two people, and that's the point I want to make as we wrap this thing up. It says, Esther put on her royal robe, stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She fasted for three days. She, I think, obviously heard something from God in terms of what she should do. She puts on her robe. She goes in before the king, even though he could kill her because she hasn't been invited. And then what does Haman do? He builds a gallows on which to hang Mordecai. Two different worldviews, let's say. Two different ways of looking at life. One is I'm going to step into the king and I'm going to take my risks. If I perish, I perish. The other one is I'm going to get rid of this guy. I'm going to build a gallows to hang him on. And now I'm going to go into the king and ask for permission to do it. Two different things are going on here. Two incredibly different things. And I believe in the story, Haman represents the godless and the humanistic. It's all about me. It's all about my wishes, all about my desires. He's a self-made man, and his hope is in nothing but him. He won't bow down. I'll just get rid of him. I'll hang him because it's all about me. Whereas Esther is going to risk her life in order to do what? Save an entire people group. I mean, she's risking it all. She's going to not only lose her queenship, she's going to lose her life if this turns south on her. Two different ways of looking at life. He's motivated by the fear of man, not God. He cares nothing about God, doesn't believe in God. He believes in Haman. And whatever gods he may worship exist for Haman's benefit, not for anything else. He's godless. Psalm 10 goes on to say, the wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead, yet they succeed in everything they do. They do not see your punishment awaiting them. They sneer at all their enemies. They think nothing bad will ever happen to us. We will be free of trouble forever. And that is exactly what Haman thinks. What did he spend forever telling his wife and his friends about how great he was, how many, how many sons I have, how wealthy I am, and I'm the best friend of the king and the queen. I will never have trouble. He's he's in for a very rude awakening. How about Esther? Esther represents the godly or the righteous. She's the total opposite. Her plans are God-inspired and her hope is God-centered because I believe when she fasted for those three days, God, whether she called to him or not, because she was a child of God, he gave her the wisdom to know what to do. 
She walked in with a plan. And what we see lived out in this, these two chapters are that plan given to her by God as she goes into the, queen, the king and she invites him to these parties with Haman. It's a God-inspired plan. And she's motivated, I think, by a fear of God. That there's something greater, something bigger, something more important than just me. Even though I'm the queen, I'm here for a reason. I think what Mordecai said to her struck a chord that she was born for such a time as this. Psalm 112.1 says, light shines in the darkness for the godly. Such people will not be overcome by evil. Those who are righteous will be long remembered. They do not fear bad news. They confidently trust the Lord to care for them. They are confident and fearless and can face their foes triumphantly. See, that's the way we're supposed to live. That's what we've been called to do is we face all the foes against us, whether it's political foes, ideological foes, literal foes. We can face them. Why? Because we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. See, our battle is spiritual. At the end of the day, guys, whatever you're going through, we were praying this morning before the study started, and Jonathan, uh, his family has had a, a stomach bug, and it's with four kids and a wife, and it's been kind of cycling through their family, and they just can't seem to get rid of it. See, that is physical, but it has spiritual implications, right? It's really hard for him to minister. It's really hard for him to go to seminary and study and do what God's called him to do and minister to his family when they're sick. At the end of the day, what we go through is a spiritual battle, and we have to understand that it's spiritual warfare, and we need God's help because we are helpless and hopeless without him. Somebody sent me that this, this week, literally yesterday, and it's from Tony Evans, so I just want to throw it at you because I love what he says. God didn't keep Daniel from the lion's den. He met him in it. He didn't keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. He joined them in it. He didn't keep Joseph from being a slave to Potiphar. He gave him favor in it, and he met him in prison as well. The proof in knowing you are where God wants you to be in your detour is that God doesn't deliver you from it, but rather joins you in it. Think about that for just a second. Every one of us, our prayer lives are geared to what? Get me out of this. Deliver me from this. When it should be, show me you in this. Where are you? What are you doing? Let me see in the midst of it. Your greatest testimony is not going to be your deliverance from the problem, but God's presence during the problem. See, if you have somebody come up to you and go, man, my marriage is really struggling and I'm really, I'm having a hard time and I don't know what to do. And you went through that period of time and all you can tell them is, you know, I had a hard time, but God delivered me. They will not be able to relate to that because they're in the middle of it. But if you can say, man, when I was going through that, here's how God ministered to me. Here's how God showed up in the darkness of my days during that period of my life. He was there and he's with you. But if all you say is, Man, it sucked for me at one point, but it doesn't anymore. That's like telling a drug addict, you know, I used to be a drug addict, but I'm not anymore. What is that? How does that help them? But if you can say, man, when I was and I was struggling, here's where God met me in the midst of my struggle and he can meet you. That's what this is all about. God meeting you in your trials, your struggles. So here are your questions for this morning, guys. 
Why do you think our natural default when facing difficulty is to assume God is either not there or he just doesn't care? Why is that our go-to? Every time something negative happens in your life, well, God just bailed on me or he just doesn't care. How about this? What benefit could there be from seeing our circumstances through eyes of faith, trusting that God is there whether we can see him or not? How could that help? Why should it help? Because according to the Bible, that's the way we're to handle it. And then finally, as men, we can sometimes find it hard to cry out for help, but how should the story of Esther change how we view our needs and God's power? See, as long as you refuse to cry out to God, as long as you refuse to admit that you're helpless and hopeless and you can't solve this problem, you will remain in your problem alone. But if you will call out to him, he's got the power to step into it. Maybe deliver you from it immediately, but maybe leave you in it long enough for you to realize that his power is greater than yours. And you can actually survive in the midst of it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for their attentiveness. Thank you for their willingness to come and do these studies and pour into Esther with me. And I pray, Father, that as they talk around the tables, that you would open up their hearts, that you would soften their hearts, Father, to hear from one another, challenge one another, encourage one another, that we might be men who see you in every circumstance of life, Father, and that we would realize that this battle is bigger than us and that each one of us, Father, have been born for such a time as this. We're here for a reason. What do you have for us to do? How would you have us live? How would you have us handle where we are in this life? And may, Father, we grow to trust more and more in you. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun, guys.